Would you like to know God better? I'm not just talking about knowing about God, but really getting to know the one with whom you will walk throughout eternity. Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805. One of the best ways to get to know someone is to find out about their past, who were their friends, what was important to them, what moves them to tears, or gives them joy. And our God shows us all these things in the history of the kings after Solomon and in the messages of the prophets that preached during that time. But sadly, few, even many committed Christians, don't take time to read these books in the Bible or to read the prophets in their proper historical order. But during our next 14 podcasts, that's exactly what we're going to do. So please join us now as we learn more about our God as revealed in these stories of prophets and kings. Extraordinary lessons, but seldom read. Let's start out with the political history. Rehoboam becomes king after Solomon. He's one of his sons. And Right after Solomon dies, the people come to him and they ask him to ease their burdens. Their fathers tax them tremendously and it's been very rough. And so here's what the older men, the older advisors say to him. They say, if you will be a servant to these people and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But his younger friends tell him just the opposite. They say, be tough. Tell him you're going to, you know, if you thought my dad was bad, I'm going to be even worse. And unfortunately, that's what Rehoboam does. He takes their advice and the nation splits in two. Now, it's important before we go on to realize that Rehoboam's reaction isn't the reason that the nation split. He is what we would call the secondary cause. God had already decreed that Judah and Israel would split into two nations from one nation because of Solomon's sin of idolatry. Now, an important lesson, though, for you to understand here, and we will see this lesson repeated many times in the coming books that we're going to read, and that is that God determines overall history. But individuals are still responsible for their actions in it. Now, some acquit themselves quite well during times of intense personal and national trial. We're going to see that in the story of Daniel. And many of you remember the Bible story of Daniel in the lion's den and Daniel refusing to eat the king's food and of his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who said, we will not bow down to the king. We will only serve God. And because of that, even though they were thrown into the fiery furnace, God rescued them. And so we see these stories of people acting the way that they should and trusting God, even though the overall situation might be one of judgment and really difficult times. It's the same situation here with Rehoboam. He did not need to answer that way. The kingdom was still going to be split. We don't know exactly how, but he did not follow God the way he really should have. Now, we're going to talk about him more in just a second, but let me just jump to his mistake, and that is that servant leadership is always appropriate no matter what the situation. Rehoboam could have said, oh, you know, you're right to the older counselors. I want to be a servant to the people. I want to help them. And that would have made all the difference in his life, but he didn't do it. And we need to remember that when we're in the midst of very difficult situations. Jesus was the example, of course, of the perfect servant. 
in John 13, this is just before he is going to go to the cross. This is just before the his final Passover meal with his disciples. And if there was ever a time for someone to focus on themselves, it would be when they knew they were going to die. I mean, like, oh, pity me, you know, it's going to be terrible. And yeah, I don't want to make light of it. I mean, the crucifixion was not anything funny or anything like that at all. But it was a really tough time for Jesus. Did he focus on himself? Did he pity himself? Did he do what was best for him? No. It says he got up, he wrapped a towel around himself, and he washed the disciples' feet. And then when he gets done, he says, Do you understand what I've done? You address me as teacher and master, and rightly so. That is what I am. So if I, the master and teacher, washed your feet, you must now wash each other's feet. I laid down a pattern for you. What I've done, you do. I'm only pointing out the obvious. A servant is not ranked above his master. An employee doesn't give orders to the employer. If you understand what I'm telling you, act like it and live a blessed life. Trying to be a big deal, whether it's a king or a servant of of any sort, it's not what is the proper thing to do. It might seem to work for a while for Rehoboam. He got a a big rush of, of being this really strong and forceful leader or whatever, but it split the kingdom. And Jeroboam led Israel in rebellion. Rehoboam starts to fight him, and God says, no, stop it. And fortunately, they did stop. The division was God's judgment and Rehoboam's to go home. He does, but he has continuous battles. Here's how the Bible describes it. Then the prophet Shemaniah came to Rehoboam and to the leaders of Judah who had assembled in Jerusalem for fear of Shishak. He's the ruler of Egypt. And he said to them, this is what the Lord said. You've abandoned me. Therefore, I now abandon you to Shishak. The leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is just. They knew they'd done wrong. When the Lord saw they humbled themselves, this word of the Lord came to Shemaniah, the prophet. Since they've humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but will give them deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. They will, however, become subject to him so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other lands. When Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem, he carried off the treasuries, the treasures, excuse me, of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including the gold shield Solomon had made. But because Rehoboam humbled himself, the Lord's anger turned from him, and he was not totally destroyed. Indeed, there was some good in Judah. Now, we see here how God was merciful when Rehoboam repented. And the, the Bible goes on to tell this kind of funny story. It says that uh, uh, that the ruler of Egypt took these gold shields. Well, Rehoboam, to keep up appearances, he then had bronze ones made. And it said that uh, they carried them before the king when he would march to the temple. And then they would have to put them in the storehouse because he didn't want anybody else stealing them. So it's kind of a, a pitiful and, and sort it's funny, but it's a really pitiful story of how the greatness of the kingdom was reduced to this sort of game after God's judgment fell on them. So here we are now. We are in a divided kingdom. And the prophets, remember, we had a podcast on this previously. And if you haven't listened to it, I I would encourage you to. The role of the prophets 
was that of covenant enforcement mediators. God gave the people his covenant when they came out of Egypt. At Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and all the rest of the law, that was God's covenant, God's agreement with them. They were to worship and obey God, and then God would bless and protect them. Now, along with the promised blessings, they were also promised punishment if they did not obey. And people back then are just like people today, they forget. So the prophets were sent to remind them of what they had promised. And the rest of the Old Testament is this combination of history and the messages of the prophets. Now, what makes this so challenging to understand and to study it is because in our Bibles, most of the history is in one place and the messages of the prophets are in another place. Now, there are a few exceptions to this early on the messages of the prophets were included in the history and the two prophets Elijah and Elisha their stories are in uh, the, the book of Kings where the history takes place but then after that it's broken apart we have the history continuing in Kings and Chronicles but then the stories of the the, not only the stories, but the messages of the prophets are in a completely other part of our Bible. And for them to make sense, you need to combine it all. And that's what we're going to be doing in this series of lessons. Now, where you will see the real difference that it makes, just in our next, in our next podcast, our next lesson, I'm going to talk about Jonah. And I'm not, I'm not going to give it away now, no spoiler alerts here, but when you realize the history of what was going on when Jonah preached, it will make so much more sense of why he ran away and just just everything that was going on. But you'll you'll have to hold that. But in all of the prophets that follow, it is important to know their history, and that's what we will be going through. Now, let's set the stage for the next 14 podcasts. First of all, the physical setting. Now, Israel and Judah, they had been one kingdom ever since the time they left Egypt. We hear their stories in the books of Joshua, Judges, and then we get to the story of Saul becoming actually actually the first king, then David and Solomon. The time span that they were really a united people, they started out a little bit as more of a loose conglomeration, but they were really considered one people, was 488 years. That was a very long time. And sadly, though, after Solomon, the kingdom splits. The southern kingdom becomes known as Judah. Its capital is in Jerusalem. And the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, they vary between good and bad. But God's promises to David's dynastic line were kept intact. It continued to only be David's line. Now, God sometimes had to punish them. Ultimately, he punishes them rather severely. We will get to that in a number of lessons. But God keeps his promise that a descendant of David is the one who would in future times be the line of the Messiah, which is, of course, culminated in Jesus. So their story is told, the Southern Kingdom story is told both in Kings and Chronicles. So again, Southern Kingdom, David's line, good and bad kings, told in Kings and Chronicles. Then the Northern Kingdom, 
It's a bit of a mess right from the start. They don't really have a capital initially. Eventually, it be, Samaria becomes the capital, and I'll be talking about how that came about in a minute. But the kings of the northern kingdom were always evil. There was not one dynastic line. Some of them only managed to stay king, their family, for maybe one of them, I think it's just two weeks, uh, sometimes a few years, sometimes they had a few descendants. But there was continual chaos and disorder, and one was constantly fighting and overthrowing another. And the history is to, of the northern kingdom is told primarily in the book of Kings. Chronicles will sometimes slightly refer to it, but you really don't even know that they're referring to it. But it's mostly in the book of Kings, and it's not one dynastic line, and there never was a good king. It was continuously evil. Now, it's important also to realize that these books are not just about Israel. God is concerned about the whole world. And in these books, he talks about the surrounding nations, and he calls them to judgment. He expects certain behavior from them also. First, and I'll just go through a few of them, and we'll mention different ones as they come up. Philistia, this is this was the land of the Philistines. Israel never completely conquered it, but they should have. They should have, have conquered the whole thing right when they went through. And when you go back and you read in Joshua and Judges, it says, but the cities along the coast, they didn't, you know, this and this and this. And by the way, we still have problems today. One of those cities is Gaza. And the Gaza Strip is still continuously an area of constant fighting between the Jews and uh, the Arabs there, very, very sadly. But it was never completely conquered, and it continued to be a problem throughout this time. Edom, the the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, there was continuing hatred, and there's uh, one book of the Bible, we'll get to it later, Obadiah, that is written specifically in judgment on Edom, though they are mentioned numerous times in other books. Moab and Ammon, these nations were the descendants of Lot by incest with his daughters, and they were always enemies of Israel. In some ways, not quite as bad as some others, but still, they, they fought a lot, and it was pretty bad. Amram Damascus. These people were closely related to Israel. Their language was Aramaic, very similar to Hebrew, but uh, they they were constantly fighting with them. They were taken over by Assyria. Sometimes, though, they were actually allies, and so they sort of they sort of go back and forth. Now, the world powers of that time. Egypt, it was a foe, but it was sometimes an ally, and it was always a temptation. For some reason, continuously, the Jews would want to run back there when times were hard. It started way back in the time of Abraham, where he went down there when there was a famine. Continuously, Egypt played this role of both enemy and refuge, and it went back and forth and back and forth, and it actually goes throughout all of the history. It it goes all the way through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. Remember, where did Jesus and his family go when Herod was killing all the children? It says they went to, to Egypt. So there's, there's a lot in these books about Egypt. Then there was Assyria. This was to the far north. This was an extremely brutal nation, and they eventually conquer and pretty much completely obliterate um, the nation of Israel. But we will we will be talking about that in detail. Then Babylon was to the south. 
and Babylon conquered Assyria. Now, they undertook various deportations of the inhabitants of Judah. There was actually a number of them before they were finally, before Jerusalem was finally destroyed. We will be going over all of those. They were much less brutal in some ways, conquerors, than Assyria, but still being conquered is being conquered, and we will we'll talk about that in a lot of detail later. Now, the thing that is important to realize in all of this is that we're talking about real people who lived in very challenging times. Let me just give you one example of some of the things that archaeology has shown us about this time, because we're not talking about fairy tales. Again, we're talking about tangible, real people with who had very, very difficult times. One of the most interesting things, and if you're in the class, and I'm hoping to do some stuff online, but I'm not going to make any promises right now, um, there uh, one of the most interesting archaeological discoveries is Sennacherib's palace. And now he's going to be this real bad guy from Assyria who comes down and who will eventually conquer Israel. But they discovered his ruins, the ruins of his palace in the 1870s. And there was so much excitement because it was tangible, physical proof of all of these things that were talked about in the Bible. Now his palace was huge. His pal- Just his palace alone, we're not talking the city or whatever around it, his palace was 600 by 630 feet in size. Now, just to compare it, um, a football field, and that's really big. I mean, if you had a house as big as a football field, that would be big. But this is about two times as big. A football field is just 360 feet long and 160 wide. So um, bigger than two football fields, this was his palace. Now, it's located, um, the ruins of it are in modern-day Iraq, and sadly, a lot of the different things were destroyed by ISIS, but not before many of them were taken out and put in museums. Now, one of the things that's, that's kind of interesting, and I've got some pictures of this on the web, and you can you can look it up, and you can even see these things. One of the most interesting rooms is this room that Sennacherib, who was a very cruel ruler, he had this huge what they they called it an antechamber, sort of this gigantic waiting room that people would sit in before they would have an audience with him. Well, that was, I guess, common for kings at that time. But what he had on the walls is what is really interesting. He had all this artwork on the walls that depicted him conquering people, cutting people up, flaying people alive, chopping off their hands and feet, impaling them on spikes, piles of heads. And we, we have a lot of these a lot of this artwork has survived and if you can imagine sitting in there and looking around the room and seeing all of these pictures before you went in to see him and I'm sure it was very intentionally done to create fear and chaos but this is this is one of the one of the people that they had to deal with so there they were a very cruel people and they were just sort of waiting to pounce on the rest of the known world at that time and we'll be we'll be talking about them a lot but Let's go back to Jeroboam, and this is quite a while before that, but the kingdom splits in half, and then sadly, Jeroboam, instead of being thankful for what God has given him, he's become ruler of this huge amount of land, he all of a sudden gets very unsure of himself, and it says in 1 Kings twelve twenty-five, then Jeroboam built up a city in the hill country of Ephraim and resided there. He went out from there and built Penuel. Then Jeroboam said to himself, 
Now the kingdom may well revert to the house of David. If this people continues to go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, the heart of this people will return will turn again to their master, King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam of Judah. And it's really sad because God had given him the nation. And now, all of a sudden, he's afraid that basically when people go to the temple that they'll turn against him. And so what does he do? It says he took counsel and made two calves of gold. Doesn't that sound familiar? That's what the Israelites did when they came out of Egypt and God judged them tremendously for it. But he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. In other words, don't go up to the temple. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He sat one in Bethel and the other one he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one at Bethel and before the other as far as Dan. He also made houses on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not Levites. Jeroboam appointed a festival on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the festival that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. So basically, Jeroboam sets up his own religion with his own idols, his own priests, and his own parties. And sadly, this did not win him this continuing favor, but it brought him God's judgment, and his family was ultimately wiped out. God said that he could give him a lasting dynasty. Dynasty Now, it wouldn't have been the one that from which the Messiah came, but it could have been a very powerful and wonderful one. But he didn't trust what God said, and God had to judge him. And not only that, in the rest of the history that we'll read, they constantly refer to the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of Jeroboam, the sins that caused Israel to sin, the sins of Jeroboam, the golden calves of Jeroboam. And instead... It could have been the founder of a neighboring dynasty that God could have blessed. But he didn't trust God. He set up his own gods, and so judgment followed. Now, a series of really evil and relatively inconsequential kings comes after him, Nadab, Baasha, Elah, Zimri. But then a rather interesting group comes along. They're called the Omerites. And this dynasty was established with, first of all, Omri, then Ahab, Ahaziah, and Jehoram. Now, let me go ahead and read you how this is introduced. In the 31st year of King Asa of Judah, Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned 12 years, six of them in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver and built a city on the hill, calling it Samaria, after Shemer, the name of the former owner of the hill. Now this is how Samaria got started, and that's when they moved to Samaria. Now Samaria really is an interesting place. It comes up in the Bible again and again. We have the stories in the New Testament about the Good Samaritan, and we also have where Jesus was at the well in Samaria, and a lot of the problems 
between the Jews and the Samaritans, you'll find out originated in their history. But at this time, it's simply the new capital of Israel. It, has, it did last all throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, and there are still some remnants of people there today. It's a big archaeological dig site, but there's also people who can trace their heritage back to that. Now, the most famous son of Omri is Je- um, Ahab, who marries Jezebel. In First Kings 16, it says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he began he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Now, how does God respond then to the evil of Ahab and Jezebel? Well, Elijah the prophet appears on the scene and it says that Elijah the prophet from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab as the Lord the God of Israel lives whom I serve there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except by my word and then he stomps out and it did not rain for three years now interesting you need to know a little bit of background on this why is it that judgment came in that way and why was that a big deal well the thing is you see remember i said that they were worshiping baal now baal is the canaanite god of storms and thunder he was the one in the uh, belief system of the time who had the power over rain and lightning. And of course, the whole thing about rain, that's essential to the crops, the people who were farmers. And he was also considered the god of fertility. And all that stopped. This was Elijah directly challenging the power of this quote-unquote god. He's saying, you think he controls your rain? The Lord God of of Israel and Judah says, no, not going to rain till the prophet says so. So for three years, no rain. Now, after the three years, there's this big showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. All of the people are called to witness it. They go up on this high hill, 400 prophets of Baal. And Elijah says, if your God is really God, remember again, lightning. Uh, rain, you know, all this kind of stuff. He's supposed to be able to do it. So you call on him and have him light this sacrificial fire. If he's really God, he can do it. And it says that they danced around and they cut themselves and they were crying out, oh, Baal, hear us, oh, Baal, hear us. And of course, nothing happens. And this goes on for quite some time. And then at the end, there's this one lone prophet, Elijah, and he builds this little altar and he just says, God, you know, show that you're God. And zap, you know, everything, you know, fire. Well, oh, actually before that too, he pours all this water on his offering. He, you know, I think he got a little bit of a show off then. But anyway, he does all this. And then God, of course, answers, ignites the whole altar. And it says it even licked up the water in the trenches. And the people then are saying, God, you know, Jehovah is God. Jehovah is God. And they kill all the prophets of Baal. So one would assume that this is a great victory and that their worship of God would be settled. 
but that isn't quite what happens. First of all, even though Elijah has this great victory, he is exhausted, he's tired, and Jezebel threatens his life. And then he runs. He's terrified. And so he runs and he hides. And God, of course, comes after him. And after he has this big show of thunder and lightning and, and all of that. And, and it says God wasn't in the thunder and God wasn't in the lightning. But God was in a still, small voice that spoke very gently to his hurting prophet. God gives him work to do. He was to appoint Elisha, the prophet who would succeed him and who would be a partner to him in his work in his final years of ministry. And to Elijah, when he went into the cave and he first is talking to God, he goes, I'm the only one left. It's me. It's only me. And then God says, Incidentally, this is the way it puts it in the today's Living Bible, there are 7,000 men in Israel who have never bowed to Baal nor kissed him. Just a little reminder, Elijah, you're not the only one. And of course, the application to us is God has so many people in so many places we know nothing about. So we can't ever assume that it's about us and only us because our God is so big. Now, a few final words about Elijah. He is considered one of the greatest prophets in all of Israel's history. He was, at the end of his life, taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. What an honor from God. John the Baptist is often compared to him. It says that John the Baptist would come in the power of Elijah. And it says that he looked like him. He wore this, um, you know, these wild skins and all this kind of stuff that similar to Elijah. But as great as Elijah was, now listen to this carefully. In James it says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. The reason I'm sharing this verse with you and talking about Elijah is because it's so easy to put these prophets on a pedestal and to think, oh, you know, we should have strive to be great like they are, to do great things or whatever. And, and maybe so. I mean, that's a worthy goal. But it's never about the prophet's greatness. It's about the prophet's great God. That is who we should try to please. And one other thing that I want you to, to see in this is too, when Elijah did all this stuff, it wasn't him. It was God that did it. And when we pray, James is using this as an example for us to pray. He says he was just human like we are. And what he, I think he's saying there, and this is really important for us to hear today, is God does not keep score on how many people are praying for something to see whether he'll answer it or not. Now, I don't want to make light of sharing prayer requests. I think that's really important and it's wonderful. So, But more so, so that people can be blessed when God answers. So a lot more people are involved and maybe caring and all that. But sometimes I think it's kind of easy to slip into this. Well, if we get enough people to pray, then God will see that we're really concerned and he'll act. No. It took one man talking to one God and saying, don't let it rain. Show that you are powerful in this. And so in our trials and our troubles and the things that challenge us, we don't need to drum up this huge audience. We can just come before the Lord and say, Lord, help me. 
Lord, change this thing in my city, in my land, for my country, for this family. You can pray powerful prayers. It says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. So if God puts a great prayer request on your heart, pray it. Because he is a God who answers, not because, again, of who you are or how many people you get to join in, but because of the God that he is. Now, following Elijah is Elisha, and he is just, he's a wonderful prophet, and, and I, I, this is going to be just a constant frustration doing these lessons, because I know I'm going to want to talk about so many more things than I have time to talk to, and I'm warning you, this podcast is going to be a little longer, because even though I tried to condense down a whole lot, I'm, there's still a lot to talk about. But Elisha, many miracles, um, as some commentators say, he had double the amount of miracles that Elijah did, because he asked for a double portion of his spirit, and eh, I don't know, you know, we're not told the whole story. But anyway, he did a lot of things. He also led what's known as a school of the prophets. So it wasn't just him. Elijah was very solitary. Elisha apparently taught many others also. And there are a number of really great stories about him. One of my favorites, and I, I really just have time for one, is they were Israel was at war with Aram. And he, uh, they were, the whole um, army had surrounded the people in Israel and it just looked really bad for him. And Elisha and his servant flee to this city and his, his servant apparently is really, really scared. And, you know, what's going to happen? We're going to be killed. And Elisha just says, don't be afraid. The prophet answers, those who are with us are more than those who are with him. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Israel won the battle, and Elisha encouraged the king to be kind to their enemies. So instead of killing them, they invited them in. They gave them this big meal. They really celebrated with them, and it's just because of that kindness that Aram never bothered them during this king's lifetime. So it's a it's a great story, and there's there's lots more, but you're going to have to read Second Kings to find them out. Now, a few final comments about Elijah and Elisha. We're not told. That their whole story. Um, there's many prophets that are just listed in bits and pieces, one little story, one comment, and we need to remember that, that we don't know everything, but we know what God wants us to, to learn from whatever stories we're told. God is in charge of the destinies of both individuals and nations. He can do big, grandiose things. He split the nation in half. He did the the big public thing with the prophets of Baal. He had numerous victories for Israel. But he also does little things that I didn't even really have time to go into the stories of how he increased the oil that this poor widow had. She had nothing to live on. And Elisha says, just go borrow jars from your neighbors. And and if you have a little oil, just... uh, Actually, he asks her, he says, what do you have? She says, I have a little oil. He says, go borrow the, the jars and just, just pour out your oil. And it filled them all up. And it says that she had enough to sell for her and her son to live on. He healed a pagan general. He raised a child from the dead. There's all these great stories that only touched individuals. And God always works in those two ways. The thing that we need to learn from, from these stories, 
stories is that circumstances never absolve us of obedience. No matter what insanity is going on around us, we can always be faithful to our God. God's given us his word. He always has his people. He has people who will teach us. He has people who will follow him. Even if we don't see them right away, they are there. And no matter what the circumstances, we're to trust and we're to live as his representatives. And sometimes the darker it is, the more that our behavior, if it's pleasing to the Lord, it'll stand out. Let me close with a couple of verses that I was reminded of. Uh, By the way, all of Paul's letters, particularly in the New Testament, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, these are books that have a lot of just practical advice on how to be God's people in a very dark world. But let me read these verses to you where First uh, Philippians one twenty seven says, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then in Philippians 2.14, it says, Do everything without grumbling or complaining or arguing. Oh, that is so hard. Sometimes we might act sort of decent on the outside, but then with people privately, we grumble, we can blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. So that you, let me start the verse over. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. And my prayer for all of us is that we may shine brightly for our Lord in this sad world, and that by doing that, that we can share with people the salvation that only comes from knowing Jesus. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson. They're in downloadable PDF format and also printed out format at www.bible805.com. Please do subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any of them in this series of Kings and Prophets. And let your friends know about them so that they too can be encouraged as they learn more about God. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.